Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, we'll be discussing the new literary middlebrow, Tastemakers and Reading in the 21st Century by Beth Driscoll, who's an academic at the University of Melbourne in Australia. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien from Goldsmiths, University of London. Okay, so welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this edition, we'll be talking with Beth Driscoll about her new book, The New Literary Middlebrow, Tastemakers and Reading in the 21st Century. Beth is a lecturer in publishing and communications at the University of Melbourne over in Australia. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Beth. Uh, it's, it's really great to have you on. Yes, it's great to be talking with you about the book. I, I think uh, we might start by, if you could just tell the listeners a bit about um, yourself, uh, what you're doing uh, at University of Melbourne in terms of publishing and communications, and maybe a bit about how uh, the, the book emerged and how you came to write it. Sure. So I'm a lecturer in the Publishing and Communications Program at the University of Melbourne. Uh, It's a great program that um, mostly is involved in teaching master's level students um, about the publishing industry, but I came to it through literary studies. So uh, as an undergraduate, I just loved reading books and writing essays about them, immersing myself in 19th century American literature or whatever. Uh, And then when it came time to do my PhD, Uh, I was reflecting a little on how it was that I came to like the books I liked, how it was that I came to study the books I'd studied, and that got me thinking about institutions. And so the PhD that I ended up writing was a mixture of literary studies but then also publishing studies, thinking about, I guess, the sociology of culture a little bit. And that's how I moved from literary studies across to this world of publishing and communications. The book itself came out of my PhD. It's about 50% from my PhD and 50% new work. Uh, My PhD spent a lot of time with Pierre Bourdieu working through the theory and um, then had some case studies. But for the book, I wanted to pick up on the case studies and add some more to that and be a bit less dense in the theoretical work. So that's how the book came to be. It's really um, sort of fascinating, actually, because... Many discussions or interventions in critical theory, this sounds a bit strange, but are quite theoretical, whereas immediately in the book there's a sense of kind of you um, as a person with a real life and a real world uh, that comes through immediately in the introduction. And obviously that's to do with, um, you know, the PhD, as as you sort of outlined, but it's also to do with your status as as a reader um, and I guess a kind of consumer of, of literature. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about that too. Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, um, to me, theory is useful because it gives me a way to talk about more books and more practices and more readings. So theory, it's fun to talk about theory for its own sake, but really I wanted to use it to get at the reading experience and the literary experience and what it's like to be part of literary culture. And for me, that's something that's, I guess, recreational as well as professional. So I'm in three different book clubs. I go to writers' festivals. I buy my parents' books for Christmas. And books are, you know, they are a personal 
um, it's a part of my personal identity. And so, yeah, I wanted that to be part of the book too. One of the things I like about books is, compared to the PhD thesis is that a, a thesis is really written for one or two readers, but a book is you getting to communicate, you know, with a wider group. And that was something that I relished. I, I love talking about how important books are to me and the role I see them playing in the wider world. And, and that actually shine, shines through in the, in, in the book, actually, because um, your sort of defence of a particular idea in the book it is bound up um as you say with you know your kind of your own life and your own reading practices your own book club practices and that actually takes us on to the, to the kind of the central core idea in the book which is this idea of the middle brow which is both um i guess a kind of a category that you're seeking to interrogate but also um a social and aesthetic position um that you're you're seeking to defend as well um, I wonder if you could say a bit about sort of what the middle brow is, what it means. Mm. Well, the middle brow, I guess, most readily comes to hand as an insult or as a label, and that's how I see it used often in the media. There was an article just a couple of days ago in The Guardian, um, and it was from a TED Talk by Benjamin Bratton, and he was talking about TED Talks themselves as being middle brow mega church infotainment, and so the middle brow it's quite humorous yeah. and and it's just it's it's a quick barb the middle brow it's a way to make a point really quickly uh, about different cultural phenomena. But I wanted to look beyond that. It's like if this term has persisted for so long, if it's there, so available every time we talk about the culture, then it must mean something beyond the insult. And so that's when I started reading around and looking at different examples of middle brow culture and the different scholarly work that had been done on it. And I was just more and more struck by how it it still seemed so relevant, what it was describing. And that to me is um, this particular cultural space that brings together the different features I outline in the book, but particularly and most obviously the harnessing of both artistic appeal or cultural appeal and commerce money making and we see those two facets brought together so often and it's always controversial and productive and interesting when it happens i mean it, it was really interesting because obviously middle brow is um a term you know as you say gets used all the time but i hadn't actually realized that as you draw attention to it has this kind of um eugenic uh, and sort of phrenological um, overtone about you know kind of classifying people based on you know the shape of their skulls and stuff like this which um, added quite a sort of um, a dark dimension I thought to um, to the discussion of of both you know kind of highbrow lowbrow and middlebrow hmm. yeah no one would talk about phonology with any credibility anymore but these brow words seem to have stuck around in a way that suggests that they they do serve an important function in terms of delineating a hierarchy of culture and trying to work out where we fit and where other people fit and where different um, cultural products and practices fit so yeah there is this kind of Eugenics is an interesting word. I hadn't thought about it in that respect, but there is a sense of using the words to try and make sense of things that are otherwise messy and complex. And I guess obviously this um, kind of act of, of I suppose, um, you know, distinction or boundary making that, that you've pointed out takes us to the major theoretical influence in the text, which is the work of, 
of Pierre Bourdieu. Um, and that plays out in a variety of different ways, particularly around your your definition of the middle brow as being to do with, on the one hand, you know, um, art or aesthetics, and on the other hand, the economics of, of the, uh, the the publishing market. Um, and I wonder if you could sort of maybe tell us a bit about the role Bourdieu plays in the text, but particularly um, with relevance to kind of um, his work on how the literary field works because you know you, you concentrate very much i think on his work that is to do with um you know the organization and practices um of of, of literature as opposed to say um you know his, his work on how consumption is ordered using you know particular statistical techniques mm. well i think um, Bourdieu is a fantastic resource for work on literature and I don't think he's really used enough by literary studies scholars because what he does that I value is bring into view all of the agents around the book. So it's not just about reading the book and considering the author, but then you also think about the publisher and the reviewer and the bookshop owner, and all of the different ways in which the book moves through the field, uh, not forgetting, of course, the reader. And I, I thought his account, too, of the struggles that go on in the literary field, the competition between agents over the right to define what legitimate literature is, was a very useful way of thinking about the controversies that flare up so often in literary culture. And this idea that literature itself is something that's so ill-defined and so up for grabs that it it regularly invites these sort of contests over its meaning. I thought that was really useful. However, working with Borgio also, I guess, opens up opportunities because there are, I think, definitely areas in his model that don't quite match with what we see in contemporary literary culture and areas where his model can be reassessed. And one of the main ways, our main aspects there is his neglect of the middle space. He's so focused on the poles of the literary field with art for art's sake and prestige at one end and then the market at the other that actually that middle area is very underdeveloped in his work and so I think there was a need to extend his model by thinking about what the middle space looked like. And that, of course, meant disaggregating the poles a little and looking at the way that prestige can flow through the field and looking at the way in which the market can influence even elite aspects of literary production. So um, I guess loosening up the Borgesian model a little to to see some more of the variety of practice going on in the literary field. I, 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 like, that, uh, I like that description of, of sort of loosening up uh, Borgesian. That, that's, that's quite funny. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. On one of my previous podcasts, I was lucky enough to um, to interview Tony Bennett about his latest uh, book, where he talks about the kind of uh, the Kantianism in Bourdieu, and it, it was very interesting that um, what you've identified there is kind of the need to sort of reassert the middle in Bourdieu um, takes us back to your uh, engagement with middlebrow uh, culture yourself, um, and yeah, in, in some ways that the kind of deficiencies you identify in Bourdieu um, are, are really about kind of playing down um, some of the more sort of positive um, aspects of middlebrow culture. And I think these express themselves in the text really clearly with your engagement with gender. So as part of your kind of definition of middlebrow, you talk about um, middlebrow being particularly feminized. It's um, bound up with being emotional, 
um, and a, a sort of a sense of earnestness. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the kind of the gendered elements of Middlebrow, because um, I think it's it's a bit of a sort of an extension uh, or maybe even a critique of Bourdieu. Yeah, well, gender is remarkably absent from his work on the literary field and it needs to be reintroduced. And I saw that in my work on the Middlebrow. Uh, I guess what I would have to say about the middle brow and gender is that the middle brow is a feminised cultural formation. So um, this is true of it both in its historical sense, the middle brow that we saw between the 1920s and the 1960s, that battle of the brows period, and it's also true of the middle brow in its contemporary um, formation. So... I don't know, I, I played a little with the idea of the middle brow being female and the middle brow being feminised. It's female because most of the participants in middle brow literary culture are women. The people who go to literary festivals are women, most readers are women, and certainly most book buyers are women. Um, most people who belong to a book club are women, and we saw this in Oprah's book club too. Um, but it's not enough to say that it's just women who are involved in middle-brow culture because middle-brow culture is also feminised. That is, it's often disparaged in gendered terms. So I said the middle-brow is um, often used as an insult and that is often bound up with a kind of sexism in the literary field, I think. So the classic example would be Jonathan Franzen expressing reservations about Oprah's book club because he saw her pics as sentimental and schmaltzy. Um yeah, some other examples would be every time book clubs appear in the media, there's a sort of a um, a dismissal of them as being mostly opportunities for wine and gossip and not really serious cultural work. So these kinds of gendered dismissals of middle brow, um, you know, once you start looking at the, word, the way the word middle brow is used, you see it quite often. Yeah, I, I found that especially kind of, uh, useful as, as an intervention actually because it it's an opportunity to say it's not just a matter of I guess um, carving out the space of um, the highbrow or the elite or the art for art's sake versus the market but it is also a way of saying you know the particular practices of one group or another are inappropriate or should not be given value and it just so happens well, it's not just so happens but it's quite clear that those particular uh, groups that are marginalised or maligned um, are, are very heavily bound up with gender, uh, gender status, um, and in some ways gender roles as well. Um, which yes. I thought was a really, really important point in the text. Yeah, thanks. Um, so we, we might think about how this sort of plays out, because um, obviously um, the, the theoretical engagement with Bourdieu and the kind of you know critique and extension of Bourdieu plays out very practically in... Um, the four examples that uh, make up the kind of the, the bulk of the text, which are book clubs, Harry Potter, uh, the Man Booker Prize and literary prizes in general, uh, and then literary uh, festivals. So I wonder if we could do them in turn. I mean, you, you sort of um, mentioned or touched upon Oprah a bit already, um, but Oprah is really kind of important um, as both uh, I guess what Bourdieu would call a sort of uh, an intermediary, um, mm. but also um, as um, a kind of, um, and yet yeah, to, to use the Bourdieu terms, you know, as someone who kind of both um, disseminates particular cultural forms, but clearly is making a market for those cultural forms as well. 
Yes, absolutely. And Oprah is really a very important figure in contemporary literary culture. So when she launched her book club in the late 90s, that really did see um, a groundswell of informal book clubs starting up again across the Anglophone world. And she continued to be influential for, you know, a decade or more. And now, of course, the book clubs moved online. So you can track the way in which the contemporary middle brow has evolved somewhat through Oprah's book club. As you say, she's an intermediary. She's a powerful tastemaker. The, the subtitle of my book is Tastemakers and Reading. And so you can't talk about contemporary literary tastemakers without talking about Oprah. And she did have an astonishing commercial effect. Um, all of her picks became bestsellers. Although there is a little bit of debate now about whether she created new markets for books or whether people just bought her recommendations rather than the other books they were going to buy anyway. Um, but what I, one of the things I'm fascinated by with Oprah is the way that she used these classic middle brow reading practices. Um, that is, she was emotional in the way that she discussed books. She was reverent towards authors. Uh, she was focusing on reading as a recreational domestic activity, reading in the home rather than reading professionally. Um, but at the same time, it wasn't always disparaged when it was talk, people were talking about Oprah because she had this incredible commercial influence. She won respect uh, and because she chose not just the sentimental schmaltzy books but also some quite serious literary works, works that um, even elite literary figures admire and match that to the commercial effect, people were um, sometimes in spite of themselves, impressed. And so I think she actually rejuvenated this category of the middle brow and reinvented it to some extent in that she made it more culturally powerful and visible um, even acceptable. And I think she did this because of the way she used um, mass media and this is really the new part in the new literary middle brow that I talk about, that we have this globalised, digitised mass media now that can be harnessed by middle brow intermediaries to amplify the impact of their reading practices. And, and it wasn't just um, a sort of smooth process as, as you describe in the, uh, the chapter on Oprah. That there, was, there was a struggle over the field, as it were, between, mm. you know, these kind of um, literary figures who were very disparaging um, about um, the idea of, of Oprah's book club, and then um, both, you know, Oprah herself, but also actually, um, that I guess, a kind of a new um, social media or mediatized um, literary public. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's right. So the Franzen episode is important. Everyone likes to talk about Franzen and Oprah, and it's because it... Um, it really brought out into the open a lot of underlying attitudes that different people in the literary field have and because it seemed to have an impact. After Franzen made his comments about Oprah's book club, she closed the club down for a while. But when she reopened it after focusing on classics for a while, it seemed to be with a new confidence and a new assertion of these middle brow logics. And she's particularly, I think, taken an interest in memoir and stories about self-improvement and this fits right in with the middle brow quality that I talk about of earnestness or a kind of ethical seriousness, this idea that reading isn't mere entertainment but it, it's improving in some way and I think, uh, yeah, that's something that Oprah's had a lot to do with. And, and that takes us seamlessly on to the next <laughs> chapter um, whereby 
you talk about um, or you kind of analyze Harry Potter, not as a middle brow text in itself, but rather how it's been kind of deployed in particular situations um, to kind of uh, develop uh, and enable middle brow uh, practices. So, so the first of those, uh, and this is, this is our link to the previous chapter with that kind of self-improvement earnestness, um, you know, therapeutic forms of, of reading it is how Harry Potter plays out um, in schools and the way it gets used by teachers. Yeah, it is interesting because Harry Potter is not a middle brow text. It's definitely popular fiction. And most of the time when it's read, it's read as pure popular fiction. Um, but in that sense, it made it an interesting limit case for me. I was like, well, what do these middle brow tastemakers and intermediaries do when they encounter a a popular text that's not middle brow, um, how permissive can they be? And I was interested too in what was going on in the school system because one of the key features I found of the middle brow is that it defines itself against the academy and against the education system. It's, it's kind of a, an oppositional relationship. But when I looked closely at the education system, I found that it was it was more permeable than it might seem. And in fact, these middle brow practices that were circulating in the mass media, as in Oprah's book club, were finding their way into schools. And one of them, the ways they were doing that was through the ways that teachers took a popular text and then matched it to middle brow logics. And what I saw with uh, Harry Potter was that while there were different uses made of the Harry Potter texts, one of the most dominant uses made was this sense of reading it for ethical self-improvement. So reading it to think about, well, how would I cope in a strange boarding house? How would I cope if I had to deal with these huge challenges in my life and so on? So teachers were taking the pleasure their students had in reading, this recreational aspect of the middle brow, and linking it up with the middle brow's um, sense of ethical seriousness and improvement and, and even it's the way it pays attention to emotion and empathy. So I found that that was a real strand of engagement with Harry Potter in the educational system, this middle brow way of using it. But at the same time, Harry Potter is, is uh, much as with Oprah, you know, a site for struggle uh, and a site for conflict, which uh, mm. is the dominant theme in your analysis of um, how it's used by newspaper reviewers, um, some of whom, I guess, are kind of positioning um, themselves in the literary field as being um, distinct and against Harry Potter, you know, because of its popularness, its status as children's literature, um, its kind of, you know, lower down in the hierarchy of literary value. But then those who are seeking to kind of celebrate it um, and talk about it as being something positive, um, uh, and, and the crucial moment, I guess, is where you show how the twin um, tensions in the literary field between economic um, and popular success versus aesthetic approval play out um, in reviews. Yeah, I'm fascinated by reviewers, and I think they have a really interesting role to play in contemporary literary culture. And it is a very middle-brow role. It's about taking books and presenting them to readers uh, and being mediated is one of the key features of middle-brow culture. But reviewers um, can make different uh, interventions, I guess, and adopt different positions with respect to the, the task that they take on with reviewing. So some of them can see their job as 
um, I guess setting up a canon of the great books, which ones will be let in, which ones are worth reading and which ones should be dismissed, which ones should you ignore. And some of those I thought you could see in their reviews that they were drawing a line, that they that Harry Potter might be fun for people to read but it wasn't going to be ever considered great literature. And the classic review in that respect was Harold Bloom's one, the heading of which was, can 35 million buyers be wrong? Yes. Um, but then other reviewers were a little bit more generous, I guess, and interested in, well, on what terms could we embrace the Harry Potter books and how could we see them as more legitimate literature? And they tended to do that through um, an almost teacherly approach that recognised them as appropriate books for children to read that would open their eyes to wonder, that would induct them into reading other literary works um, and that, that would be good for them to read in terms of developing empathy as well. I mean, it, it, it's also funny the way that um, the particularly commercial um, reviewers or, 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 say, those reviewers who um, are invested in the literary field um, because they themselves are writers or are making a living from it, unlike, mm. say, academics, you point out that they can actually do very well from the boundaries they themselves draw, the, the kind of, um, I guess, a kind of aesthetic or anti-market position can be very useful for them in marketing themselves and in kind of, you know, establishing their reputation as someone who should be, you know, paid for their opinions or, you know, do more reviews or appear on television or, or something like this. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that, that's what I was suggesting when there are these different positions that you can take up in relation to a text like Harry Potter. Um, yeah, and so we did see that, that filing a contrarian opinion was a not a bad way to make a, a bit of media profile for yourself as the writer of the review. And at the same time, this kind of media profile and, you know, getting oneself known plays out with um, the third of your fourth case studies, which is literary prizes, which again are positioned between um, having the function of um, both aesthetic confirmation of the literary field coming together and saying we as a field bestow legitimacy uh, on a particular um, book, whilst at the same time being really crucial to sales and really crucial to be kind of moments where um, the market lens focuses focuses itself on one text. Yes, and prizes are more important than they've ever been. Uh, I did a, a study with um, my co-author, Sophie Allen, and we looked at the books that are set in Year 12 subjects. That's, a sub, uh, that's the year just before people go to uni here in Australia. And of the contemporary books that were on the syllabus, almost 100% of them had won a prize. So prizes are a route to institutional legitimacy. And, of course, they're a route to the book clubs around the world and to media attention and reviews and so on. So they're absolutely crucial part of the literary infrastructure that we have. But it is interesting to me how they can be so often accepted as being about nothing more than which is the best book. So as you say, a kind of a, a, a statement purely about the merit of the book or about its legitimacy as literature. And yet so many of these prizes, like the Man Booker Prize, were explicitly started with the aim of stimulating sales and driving the industry. And that's, you know, it's part of their foundation. 
but people often just look at it more on the grounds of what it's doing in terms of cultural distinctions. And the Booker Prize is particularly kind of um, problematic in this sense, as you identify how it's caught between the two poles of Mm. sponsorship of being a big commercial operation and yet at the same time having um, this kind of status within um, uh, almost kind of canon making, I guess. And this goes back to its beginning and you identify, you know, sort of people taking issue with non-specialists or non-literary figures being put on Mm. board um, right the way through to kind of issues over sponsorship. Mm, I love the Booker Prize. Uh, I think it's the most successful prize in the world at uh, gathering media attention, at getting people talking. Uh, maybe it's because I'm particularly tuned into it. One of the book clubs I'm in reads the Booker Prize long list every year and talks about how terrible all the books are. No, I'm joking. We, we have a great time. Um, but I do think that this media presence that it has means that it's in a difficult position in terms of it's both commercially influential and um, seen as a consecrator of books sometimes, but then the consecrations that it it tries to complete are never quite finalised, I think, because of its, uh, you know, enmeshment in commercial structures. But one of the great things about the Booker Prize apart from reading its history and watching the way it's developed, moving between those two positions of focusing on sales, focusing on prestige, concentrating on getting the right judges, the right sponsor and so on. One of the other great things about the Booker Prize is how it bounces off other prizes. So we saw the Orange Prize for Women start as a way of correcting gender imbalances that they perceived in the Booker Prize shortlists. And then just a year or so ago, we saw the Folio Prize because begin because it saw the Booker Prize as too middle-brow and, uh, yeah, it seems to be a real provocation within the literary field that inspires a lot of activity around the edges. And there's a really amusing uh, example of these tensions with, uh, you, you cite the kind of um, the process of, of an interview that discusses betting on the Booker Prize winner, mm-hmm. whereby literary critics have almost or the, the literary critic in question in the example has almost no idea what sort of commercialized gambling is or what a betting shop <laughs> is whilst at the same time um you know there's the possibility that actually lots of money gets wagered on these things and you know it's it's uh, again you know a kind of a, a big uh, commercial operation yeah, that's right. And it's a real stage for this clash between art and commerce in the literary field. And you think about it, that was a televised interview between um, a literary critic and someone who works for a betting agency. And they're talking about um, their different ways of dealing with the book in the literary field. And, you know, it's it's a fabulous spectacle of the field's so-called extremes coming together and interacting with each other. And, and uh, I guess that, you know, this, because these themes run right the way through the book, there are similar things to be said about uh, literary festivals, where your discussion of literary festivals, particularly the um, Melbourne Writers' Festival, um, sort of brings up again these questions of um, art versus commerce, and, and most crucially as well, the questions of, of gender um, and the kind of... Um, status that is accorded to a predominantly female middle class um, and slightly older audience um, 
attending literary festivals that are both at once, you know, kind of celebrating um, serious literature, but also are designed to, you know, sell a lot of books and, you know, um, create commercial relationships and stuff like this. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, literary festivals are often dismissed in the media in similar terms to the way that book clubs are dismissed as, you know, uh, an event for doctors' wives, ladies who lunch and so on to an outing for them. Um, and yet they're really interesting phenomena. They they put writers on a stage, they glamorise writers, create this aura and this prestige for for writers and books and then they are commercial as well they're another route to market they're a way of publicizing new releases uh, they have pop-up bookshops that are prominently displayed and so they're implicated in these two um two systems as we said art and commerce but they also they go beyond i think that binary to modeling some really interesting ways of reading and ways of talking about books and so uh, books at a writers' festival are often presented in quite personal terms. There's uh, heavy emotional content. Um, readers talk about how meaningful books have been for them. They get the books signed and have this sense of you know connection with the author that's really important to them. And there, there's a real seriousness to the writers' festival too. This idea of earnestness in that um, lots of the sessions talk about. Um, politics or human rights or big ideas they they extend that remit of the literary festival out towards the more general festival ideas often and yeah there is a kind of seriousness to them too so um yeah so i think that they're middle brow in their the way they bring together art and commerce but they're also middle brow in the the more nuanced um, way of understanding the middle brow and it's uh, i guess a moment of that further uh, defense of the middle brow what one of the things you talk about in the conclusion is the way that um, through um, social media practices um, at festivals we can see how um, I guess elite um, authors are perhaps slightly more marginal um, in the forms of media that um, almost the majority of people are using to communicate with each other, whilst those people who might be seen as more emerging or, or more middle brow are often very active on social media, you know, a kind of um, seeing their activities reflected um, in terms of, I mean, you give the example of um, particular authors being quoted, you know, almost word for word because they are serious mm-hmm. and have to have reverence and then other authors being, you know, sort of paraphrased and, you know, people talking about their emotional relationships uh, with them and how excited they were to see them and, and stuff like this. And it suggests, I guess, that the twin activities of social media and social mediatization, along with um, the kind of uh, the emergence of middle brows, legitimate category, it is really transforming um, how we see reading in, in 21st century society. Yeah, it's. Um, I'm fascinated by social media engagements in literary culture, and I feel like it's an incredible resource for us as researchers because we have now this wealth of texts, of narrative texts, where readers uh, demonstrate their own narratives of reading, their own responses to authors and to books. Uh, and in festivals, for example, you can you can see the 
the quotes that people respond to in the audience. You can see the way that these are, I guess, packaged and transmitted and retweeted and so on. And it's, yeah, I think it's a very powerful insight and it shows that these middle brow logics are at work um, for audiences, not just for the intermediaries, the people who organise the literary festival or chair the sessions. You can look at the way that readers will respond to something that's emotional from a writer. Um, yeah, and I think that's um, a tremendous resource for us. Uh, and in many ways, the middle brow seems to, through you know the struggles over the field, seems to be solving uh, the the kind of the tensions between the commercial and the aesthetic. Uh, and in many ways, in I think it's you know the last few lines of your conclusion, talk about market power and cultural appeal mean that this will be very much the future of reading. Yeah, I think so. I think we're seeing an expansion of middle brow culture. We're seeing it um, become dominant because it is so commercially significant and so commercially viable. It's it's um, well attuned, I think, to the ways in which books are sold now through social media and um, you know it operates globally and so on. But I guess the other point that I'd like to make is that I don't think the extremes of the field have disappeared. I don't think we live in one middle-brow world now because the middle-brow is crucially a relational term and it does define itself against elites, against the academy, uh, against uh, writers who just write for other writers and not for readers. And it also defines itself against the merely popular and the the quote-unquote trash. And so, well, I think we will see those... Um, extreme positions persist, but I think they're smaller and weaker than they've ever been, whereas the middle brow is more powerful than it's ever been. Yeah, I guess that's a sort of sense of legitimacy that the uh, certainly the elite end and in, in its own curious way, the kind of the popular end have um, eroded yeah. in, in different ways by, by the expansion of the middle brow. I mean, what, what, you, you talked so much about the sort of the interesting possibilities uh, contained um, in the questions that the book raises. Are you doing more work um, on this sort of area or have you moved on to something um, sort of slightly different? Uh, no, I'm inspired to follow up some of the threads that came through this book that I wanted to explore in more detail. And one of them is, I think, the growing role of readers so I think that cultural intermediaries such as Oprah were more important at the beginning of the 21st century than they are now with the rise of Goodreads, um, with Amazon reviews, uh, with social media and Twitter and so on. I think that readers are influencing other readers in um, more visible and perhaps more significant ways than they have before. So the way I think about the trajectory I've been on is that, first of all, I was interested in reading books and learning about authors and then I was interested in the intermediaries and now finally I'm going to talk and work with readers themselves some more. So I'm interested in doing work on reading and I'm also, yeah, interested in doing some more work with digital expressions of literary culture and in what ways that might mimic the non-digital forms such as the book club and in what ways it might uh, be somewhat different. Yeah. That sounds fascinating. I, I look forward to seeing uh, seeing more of your work. Uh, oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory, where we were discussing The New Literary Middle Brow by Beth Driscoll. I've been your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien, from Goldsmiths, University of London.